Okay, uh, we're talking about the imperial church. So, so what we're at today is we're picking it up basically where we left off at the end of last week, which was we, can't, we basically got to just the 300s. And today we're only looking at about 100 years versus 300 years. So we're going from the start of the 300s to about the early 400s when, the, uh, when Rome fell. So kind of a lot happens in that 100 years, though. And so we'll, we'll talk through some of the big, <clears throat> the big things. Um, let, let me just start with the recap from last week, and, and we'll just talk through what was happening over the first 300 years again, just so everyone's on the same page. Um, most of what was happening in the first 300 years of, uh, from the book of Acts to 300 uh, was a lot of persecution, a lot of, a lot of uh, Christian persecution, lots and lots of church growth as well. So those are kind of the two main things that we talked about was <clears throat> persecution. We just basically spent all this time looking at each emperor or many of them as we worked through those, uh, those centuries and what their policy was towards Christians. And in the midst of all that persecution uh, and suffering, there's also a, a rapid growth of the church um, to the point that it gets so large by the 300s that it becomes uh, like an obvious thing to start taking these Christians seriously because they became quite a, quite a force in the, at least in their presence in, in the Roman empire. So, uh, we're going to, I'm going to pick it up basically where we left off last week. We started talking about the great persecution and this was like the last wave of persecution for the Christians before relief. And so I just want to recap that. And we, we talked a little bit about it at the very tail end of last session, but, uh, let's re- recap it again. And it's started in the early 300s. Emperor Diocletian, um, went through a reorganization of the empire. So the empire had up to this point been led by one emperor and, and uh, Diocletian is looking at uh, a massive amount of land and people to, to take care of here. So the British Empire, or the, sorry, the Roman Empire spreads from Britain uh, all the way down to like northern Africa through the Middle East. Um, just a massive uh, amount of geography to cover. So Diocletian has this, this idea to uh, reorganize, and instead of uh, having one guy purely at the helm of everything, uh, to basically divide the empire into east and west, and then place uh, two emperors in each of those locations, in the east and the west. So you had uh, basically a team of four guys leading the Roman Empire at this time. Um, so just how that worked was that you had two emperors who had the title of Augustus. Uh, Diocletian was one of them in the east, and uh, Maximian was in the west. So these were basically like the primary emperors, the Augustus. And then under each of them was more or less a junior emperor, kind of a vice president type of person, with, which would get the title Caesar. And so at this time, there was a Gallerus uh, under Diocletian, and then uh, Constantius Chlorus under Maximian. So the, a lot of names. You're probably not going to be able to track all, with all of this. I'll try to do my best to uh, make sense of it because it does get kind of wonky and complicated. But, but while Diocletian was at the helm, uh, it's worked pretty well. He was a really competent leader, a really good administrator. Um, <clears throat> he was a strong person. And so his, his idea was let's get these 
four guys, me being one and three other guys, to, to run the empire together. Uh, we'll divide and conquer, more or less. And that'll prevent civil wars, which, if you remember from last week, we talked about how there was just constant civil wars happening in the Roman Empire. Emperors being killed and then replaced and just chaos. And so Diocletian's whole thing was, let's stop the chaos. And this was his plan to do that. Uh, but it actually doesn't really work. So he, he tries and fails. Um, but basically what happens is uh, Galerius, uh, who is Diocletian's junior emperor, uh, didn't like the Christians for whatever reason. He had a problem with them. And I think his main issue was that he was concerned that those who were Christians, if they served in the military or in upper levels of Roman leadership, would eventually become disloyal to the empire, which is actually probably a, a true thing, right? Because when, when God and you know money come into it or God and uh, the false gods of the Romans... Yeah, they're going to pick the, their gods. So he was not wrong about that, probably. But he was concerned that having them serve would uh, jeopardize everything. So he convinces Diocletian to kind of be kind of reluctantly, but Diocletian orders this new edict against the Christians, preventing them from serving in the military or high positions of authority, which I know I mentioned last week. Um, so that's happening. That leads then to the cruel uh, persecutions that is called now the Great Persecution. Um, and it's the hardest thing that the early church had to endure at that time. Uh, efforts were made to encourage Christians to abandon their faith. And um, sadly, many of them did abandon the faith because there was quite a stretch of, of years, several decades of comfort and peace and prosperity for Christians Again, you remember, it just kind of went in waves, right? There was seasons of persecution, then there were seasons of calm. And there'd been a relatively decent length of time where it had been calm and Christians could do their thing. And uh, once, the, once the persecution ratcheted up again, a lot of them just couldn't take that. So many of them succumbed uh, to the pressure to, to leave the faith. Um, the rest, many of them were tortured or killed. Some were imprisoned and some fled if they could. So while all that's taking place, um, Galerius um, also is kind of conspiring to take over as the lead emperor. He wants to become the Augustus. He doesn't want to be the Caesar. And so in 304, Diocletian gets sick. We don't really know from what. Um, he survives, but he's weak. He's tired. He's not the strong man he was before this. And so Galerius uh, basically goes into... His, his house and is like, listen, I'm going to kill you if you don't abdicate. So I'll, I'll give you the courtesy of quitting or I'm going to kill you. And Diocletian does abdicate at that point, as does Maximian, uh, Maximian as well. So that means that both Augustuses are out. Now these, these Caesars, uh, Constantius Chlorus and uh, Gallerus, are now elevated to Augustus. Um, so... At the, at, there's, a lot, there's a lot that happens between this slide and the next slide. But basically what happens is that um, the arrangement doesn't actually work out very well. The people are pretty angry about this. The military actually refuses to obey uh, Galerius. And uh, Constantius, Chlorus, at some point between those two slides, dies. Um, and Constantine, his son, takes his place. 
and and the the military really turns to Constantine. They love they love him, um, and they're like, let's follow that guy. So, Galerius is kind of despised. Constantine becomes the the favorite of the people and of the military. And if you control the military, you're in a good spot when all of this is going on. <clears throat> so, eventually, the persecution comes to an end, and there's relief for the church because Galerius becomes ill. He has a painful disease. Again, we don't know what it was. Uh, but um, he was convinced by some of the Christians around him that the disease was God's punishment against him for his policies. Uh, was this true? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But they're, they're smart. They're like trying to manipulate him basically to, <laughs> to get him to change his policies. And they're like, you know why you're sick? It's because you're being mean to the Christians. And their God doesn't like that. So, so you need to stop. So begrudgingly, he decides to change his policy in hopes that he would recover. Um, he, he issues an edict proclaiming freedom to the Christians for worship and to serve in the empire again and, um, and to release those who were imprisoned for their faith. But then he dies five days after this. So um, the, there's a Christian historian from that time period that basically makes the point that those who persecute Christians die horrible deaths and uh, basically don't be like that. And, and uh, basically say Galerius' repentance came too late because everybody's looking around going, well, he, he changed his mind, so why didn't God heal him? And the guy's like, ah, came too late, sorry. I don't know if any of that, I mean, that's, this is just the stuff that we have as far as what people are writing about at that time. Um, so that happens, Galerius dies, and, but his edict is in place, so the Christians get a reprieve from their suffering. Um, at this same time, huge changes in the politics of, of Rome is coming down um, that ultimately will, will lead to the final end of persecution for the Christians. Uh, Constantine begins a campaign that will eventually make him the sole emperor of, of the entire Roman Empire. Um, and again, lots that you could read on this. I'm just giving you the, the highlights but he leads his army. Um, he's, I think he's in the west. He's going towards the eastern end of the empire. Um, he leads his army across the Alps, and he marches on Rome, which is his, uh, basically his underling's capital. Um, that guy's taken by surprise, because you don't expect your, the guy you're supposed to be working with to you know, uh, kill you. So he... <laughs> He's taken by surprise. He's unable to defend his strongholds of, in Rome, but mostly because he made a really stupid decision as far as the military uh, goes. So he could, Maxentius here, he could have changed the whole course of history as we know it had he just remained behind the walls of the city and forced Constantine to, to turn back or, or just not engage because Rome was an incredibly fortified city. It was not easy to, to defeat but instead, Maxentius listens to these idiots uh, who tell him that the gods are telling him to go out and meet Constantine and he's going to win. These seers uh, tell, tell him he should fight, and he does. And he does, it doesn't go well for Maxentius. Um, <clears throat> but at, at the same time, Constantine, we're told by these two Christian chroniclers, Eusebius, we talked about last week, and then this, um, the guy who was talking about Galentius' uh, death being a punishment from God. Those two guys basically talk about how at this time Constantine gets this dream or vision 
uh, of the Christian symbol, which we think of as the cross, but it's not the cross. It's the Cairo, which are two Greek letters, um, basically an X and what we would see as kind of a P, the, but it's the Greek for C-H and R, which are, of course, the first letters of Christ. And so this symbol, the, the, the Cairo, the Greek letters there, have become kind of the Christian symbol uh, at this point in time. The cross was still obviously an instrument of torture in the Roman Empire, so they didn't embrace the cross. We, we have, uh, but they weren't like having it around their necks. That would have been like us carrying uh, like lethal injection needles around our neck or something crazy. Um, so that was how they, they thought of it. But the Cairo basically is the start of Christ, and so they, they use those letters to represent their faith. So apparently Constantine sees these, this sign in the sky, in this vision or this dream, and he hears the words, in this you shall conquer. So he takes that, according to these Christian historians, takes this to mean that Jesus is on his side and he's going to win this battle in Jesus' name. And so he, he goes up against Maxentius. He, uh, as we'll see in a second here, he does defeat him. And, um, but this is like, it, at least in Christian like lore, I don't know if any of this is actually what happened or not. It's just, it's been the story that's been passed down for all these years. He, he takes this, Constantine takes this as like the moment that God clearly told him that this is, this is what I'm on your side and you're going to win this thing. So throughout history, a lot of Christians have seen this, that moment, that moment of him getting that sign from God as the moment of Constantine's conversion to Christ or to Christianity. But that's actually not true. Like we know for sure that he did not embrace Christianity for many years uh, after that, if at all. Uh, and I have a little bit of cynicism in me about Constantine, as you'll, you'll find out. Um, but Constantine basically um, sees this sign of, of Christianity. He thinks Jesus is on his side in this, and he goes on to fight this battle. Um, if the co- conversion of Constantine ever actually happened, it was a long process. It wasn't, this, it wasn't at this moment in time. We know that for sure. Um, he continued to worship a false god named the Un- Unconquerable Son, um, which is Sol Invictus in, in the Latin, I think, uh, but was a Roman god that he worshipped as did his father. So he didn't immediately turn to Jesus even after this this moment. But he does take it as a sign uh, that the Christian god is on his side. And so he goes against Maxentius. He defeats him. Uh, they fought a, a famous battle on the uh, Milvian Bridge. Uh, Maxentius falls into the river and drowns. Uh, and then Constantine takes over the entire western half of the empire. So he just basically killed his junior emperor, and um, now he's the full, the, the only guy in charge of the west side of the empire. Um, from there, Constantine ends up going to Milan, uh, basically doesn't engage in a war with the, with the east quite yet, but he makes an alliance with the emperor on that side of the empire, and they make an agreement to end the persecution once and for all of the Christians. And the argument is, is that because, um, or what, what they'll say is that because Constantine beat his enemy by the Christian God, these Christians should be free from persecution. So they make this agreement known as the Edict of Milan. And, um, and that is what finally, for the Roman Empire, ends the suffering 
of the Christians. We're going to talk quite a bit about that and whether or not that was a good thing or not, but, um, but we're going to work through some more things about Constantine, because Constantine is a, a big player in church history. We have to deal with Constantine if we're going to think about Christianity as we know it. He, he really did, for good or for ill, shaped Christianity as we understand it, at least on the Western, what we would call the West. Um, there is an Eastern branch of Christianity, which we'll talk about a little more in the next couple weeks. Um, but in, in, East, in, in Western Christianity, as we understand it and know it, um, Constantine was a huge contributor to, to what we think of as Christianity. So um, at the end of the day, Constantine goes on uh, to wage a long, hard-fought battle, uh, takes over eventually the whole empire. He becomes the sole emperor. Um, but we're not talking about Roman military history. So we're just not going to talk too much about that. You can listen to podcast after podcast or you know, get audiobooks or whatever you want to do. You, there's tons of information out there about Constantine and his, his battles. But we're going to just primarily focus on how all of this shapes the church at the end of the day. So let's talk first about Constantine's conversion, or maybe we put that in quotations even. Um, it's been a subject of a lot of debate over the years. So there's basically two main schools of thought on Constantine. One is that um, due to the events surrounding the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and the Edict of Milan and his sensitivity to the Christians and his willingness to be nice to them and, and really embrace the church, uh, some have suggested that the, that the emperor's conversion to Christ was the whole goal in which history was moving uh, to, to bring the church to where we are today. And in a sense, I think there's some truth in that, in that God is sovereign over the events of human history. And we can't deny the fact that it Constantine's conversion, so whether it was genuine or not, um, did really impact the church as we, as we know it. So there's some truth in that, but I think some people may overstate uh, the, the, the way in which Constantine embraced Christianity. And I, I don't know that he... He did to the same degree that we, I don't know if we met Constantine today in the way he understood the, the Christian faith in the church that we would say he's a Christian. Like, I think we'd have some questions. Um, we'll get to some of that in a bit. The other side of the argument on, on Constantine is basically that he was a shrewd politician. He became aware of the advantages politically to, to have a conversion and basically the argument there is that the Christians had grown so quickly, so rapidly and organically um, that they became a really big presence in the empire. And Constantine is basically hedging his bets and going, okay, this group of people who are following this Jesus guy is a massive contingency of the people in my empire, so maybe I should join them and, and become a part of them. And so there's sort of the, the cynical side of it, which would say he's not, he never became a true Christian. He was just politically advantageous. Um, and I think the answer is maybe somewhere in between those two things. Um, I think my perspective on this for whatever it's worth is that Constantine probably did genuinely believe in the power of Christ in his power. But I don't think Constantine understood grace for sinners. Um, I think he embraced Christianity in the way that a Roman polytheist, pagan, 
understanding of the supernatural would have received it and believed it. Like, I think for Constantine and for much of his life, he he continued to, to worship other gods. Um, he He seemed to have this cherry-picked view of Jesus where he's like, Jesus can do some things for me, so I'll embrace him to a point. But I don't know that Constantine, again, I, I wasn't there, so of course I don't, but um, I don't know that he ever fully got to the realization of his need for grace. Um, so here's a few reasons why I'm not totally persuaded that his conversion was genuine. Um, like I said, he worshipped other gods. The unconquerable son was who he was most famous for having continued to worship. There's there's ancient coins uh, that they've discovered from that time period where Constantine has his his uh, likeness on one side of the coin. The other side is the likeness of this unconquerable sun god. Um, those things were still going on even after the, the battle of the at the bridge and the Edict of Milan. Another thing that Constantine never did was he never put himself under the authority of the church. He he never actually formally joined the church. And I think part of that was because he, he saw himself as above the church. He was the emperor and they had to be submissive to him, not him submissive to them. And uh, so, so that, but that's, that's questionable, right? I think most of us would say a Christian who is completely separating himself from the church in any meaningful way isn't, maybe isn't not a Christian, but there, there's some question marks as to the sincerity that they have about it. So that's possible. And then the third thing was that he was never baptized. Well, he wasn't baptized, rather, as a Christian until he lay on his deathbed. At the very end of his life, he supposedly asked for uh, one of the bishops to come and baptize him. And again, it's like, okay, but are you just hedging your bets there? Like, that, there's, a, there's some questions in that. So <clears throat> there's a few things there. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not here to make a final judgment on the state of Constantine's heart. I'm not God. We're not God. But looking at these facts, looking at kind of the, the reality on the ground, it just makes some questions. Um, so long, I mean, there's a ton on Constantine that we can talk about. But this is, as far as church history goes, these are kind of the main things I want us to think about, is that he did embrace Christianity to a point. He certainly legalized it, and then eventually made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And, and th- that is going to lead to a lot of things that he impacted. So let's talk about some of the impacts of, uh, that Constantine had on the church. Um, all right. The impact of Constantine's relationship to Christianity resonates to today. Um, his conversion, so, so-called conversion, led to many positives, um, like the end of persecution and even the development of theology, in which theology of things that we believe and, and uh, uphold as biblical things, which we'll look at some examples in a bit. But, of course, there are good things that came from Constantine's uh, relationship to Christianity. Um, I... I, I'm not up here saying that everything Constantine did was wrong and evil and all of that. However, I think that with most things, there are pros and cons. Right? There are negatives uh, with the positives. And here's some negatives. Um, so after, beco- after making Christianity the state religion, uh, they imposed worship. It wasn't like a choice. You had to become a Christian. It was, it was like 
that that's a problem. I think most of us would agree is not good to force conversion on people. Um, and then and the worship in which they practiced was influenced by imperial protocol. In other words, Emperor Constantine had a very strong hand in how worship was conducted. And that led to a few of these examples. One was that incense was introduced into Christian worship. Um, incense was, was used in the Roman times as a sign of respect to the emperor. It was basically a part of the cult of the emperor. And now Constantine is going, well, you don't have to burn it for me, but we got to burn it for, for Jesus. And so incense becomes a part of Christian worship. Um, ministers who had up to that point been just normal people wearing regular clothes were now wearing these fancy robes and garments and kind of standing out above the the regular people in the church. So now ministers are basically becoming people of uh, with government employment. Then thirdly, churches were being built, but not as the simple buildings for gatherings that they used to be. Churches in the prior to Constantine were being built, but they were just small, simple structures. But now they're becoming these massive buildings with all the trappings of wealth and impressiveness. And uh, I think those are just a few examples of how when, when power, political power in particular, gets into the church, um, things start to become a bit corrupted. Um, I, I think that that's a very natural, normal human thing to, to see happen. And um, we, we actually can see some of that impact in, in the reactions to Constantine that were taking place at this point in time. What's really interesting, this was fascinating to me as I studied it in the last couple of weeks, is that not all Christians during this time were happy with Constantine's reforms. I, I kind of had this picture of Christianity that was like, okay, cool, no more persecution, we'll just do whatever you want, um, because they were grateful to not be suffering anymore. But, but that's actually not the reality. Um, after his imperial endorsement and favoritism for Christians, there was this new cultural permissiveness and secularism that started to arise within the faith. And there were pious Christians who began to worry about kind of the inner realities of the church of immorality and abuse and vice taking place. So again, you, you, mix, uh, you mix politics and religion and you're going to get some, some nasty things in the mix there. Um, the, the historian uh, Gonzalez, who wrote the story of Christianity, which is one of the books I shared last week with you, one that I'm using quite a bit for this, um, he writes this, the new privileges, prestige, and power now granted to the church leaders soon lead to acts of arrogance and even to corruption. So as such, um, many in the early church, not, not just like a few here and there, not, there was quite a significant number of people who were going, the church is not what it should be. And, and they seek, they're seeking out a different, less secular, more pure environment in, in which to pursue their spirituality and their, their faith. And there were really two main ways in which this, these, these kind of pushbacks against Constantine took place. One is called the monastic reaction, and the other is the schismatic reaction. So there's a variety of groups within each of those kind of broader categories 
but let me just quickly define them for you. Um, the monastic reaction is exactly what you think it is, okay? It's exactly what it sounds like. Christians expressing their dissatisfaction with the new order by withdrawing to deserts and setting up monasteries. So we're going to see even more of this, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the monastic uh, move in Christianity next week as we get into the Middle Ages. But already in the 300s, there was a significant move away from uh, the imperial cities and Rome and all these things, and they started to express themselves religiously by withdrawing to desolate places and getting out of the craziness and setting up monasteries, which, um, you know, we still see in in some uh, branches of Christianity today, we still have uh, monastic orders and things, and especially in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, we'll talk about some of that a little more in detail next week with uh, monasticism and how all that plays out. But, but even at the very beginning, there were Christians who were going, this isn't right, we don't like this, let's go do our own thing. So you had the, them kind of remove themselves willingly. And in a sense, we still have groups, Christian groups like this. You have, in some sense, you have, I mean, the Amish would be an example of this, not in the same exact way, but people who are going, we don't need the world's influence on in our lives and we're going to do our own thing. Um, to a lesser degree, the Mennonites are kind of in that, in that camp. Um, and so they would be considered Christian groups, and I think many of them sincere Christians uh, choosing to express their faith in a way that I wouldn't necessarily choose to do so. But, but that's, that's kind of uh, in a modern sense where, what we'd see. Um, the other side of it, the other stream of reaction would be the schismatic reaction. And this would be the people who declare the church to be lar at large uh, to be corrupted and that they were the true church. So basically you had a group of people who were like, Constantine's church is not even a church anymore. We're the church. And that's a little dangerous. Um, and, you know, that's really kind of the, the heart of all cults, okay, <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, basically every cult is going to say, we're the true church. You're not. I just watched the documentary on Netflix the, the other day about uh, the Waco stuff back, back in the 90s. And that was the, the Branch Davidians and, and, you know, we could, I mean, it's fascinating. The whole story is crazy. But the Branch Davidians and like every other cult that's ever existed is like everybody out, out there is corrupt. We're the true church. And then all the crazy things come out of that. But uh, one of the main groups during this time in the 300s was called the Donatists. And that was, they were named after their leader. Um, <clears throat> and their view was that the, the, the sacraments, meaning baptism, the Lord's Supper, um, required a priest who was pure and had moral character to be in order for those things to be effective. And so basically they're going, the, the priests and the leaders that Constantine is putting in charge of the church are not pure people. They're not moral people. They're not, they don't love Jesus. We do. Um, and so they shouldn't be allowed in the church. And the way that they defined pure is interesting that they, they were kind of looking at the things that had been done in the past and recognized that there were people who were being given church appointments, leadership appointments that had lapsed during persecution that had basically said, uh, I'm going to renounce the faith because I don't want to be persecuted. 
And, and there was, so the specific issue that came up for the Donatists was that um, there was a, a bishop in Carthage who was being ordained and his, his service was being uh, consecrated or whatever, done through this guy named Felix, who was a bishop in, uh, in Aptunga, I guess. I don't know how to say that. But, um, but they were saying that the, the bishop of Carthage is not a true bishop because Felix had over, overseen the service. And when the, when the persecution was happening, Felix gave the sacred books and relics to civil authorities. So he basically snitched on everybody. And, um, and so now these Christians are looking back and going, wait, don't we remember that Felix was this guy who like betrayed all of us? And now Constantine made him a bishop. And now that guy's overseeing this guy in Carthage. And they're just like, no, it's all invalid. It just doesn't, it doesn't work like this. Um, the Donatists had some really bizarre views on a lot of things. And, um, Augustine, who we'll talk about in a little bit here, uh, spent a lot of time fighting the doctrine of the Donatists. They weren't right about a lot of things. Um, But I think at the heart, to give them the benefit of the doubt, the heart of what they wanted was moral purity. They They wanted leaders in the church who actually loved Jesus. And that's a good thing, right? But but uh, I think they just took it way too far, um, which we're not going to get all into the weeds on that. But um, at the end of the day, we could talk a lot more about these groups. Um, there's a lot out there about them. But let, let's just leave it with this as we think about these things. Um, not everyone was happy with what the church had become under Constantine. And that's really interesting and, and good to remember because um, I think a lot of us, at least I was like this, I assumed that um, up until the Reformation, everybody was basically just in lockstep with the, with the Roman church and everybody was cool. And that's actually just not historically the case. There have always been people um, considering the options and considering where things are going wrong and making, making decisions based on their view. Uh, whether we agree with them fully or not is, is not really the point. It's more of the fact that they existed, like they, they were there and they were against what Constantine was doing. Um, Can I ask a question? Yeah. Where was scripture at in all this, like the gathering, the canonizing, and all that? Was it widespread? Like, people access to it? Was it still just, I don't know, where was it at? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think at this point they had basically narrowed down this, the canon into the, the New Testament books that we have. Um, and I think that what you have is a lot of groups that are, you, you have a lot of like localized factions during this that would interpret scripture in certain ways. Yeah. And so they were basing these things on scripture, but they were coming at it from different perspectives. Uh, and so that's one thing that Constantine will help with is try to bring everybody together. And we'll, we'll get into that in, in a little bit, but... Yeah, that is a good question, though, because I, I think these, these people are trying to make the Bible speak and make sense to them, but they're, they just have some weird interpretations yeah, of it. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, are they interpreting their own traditions, or they mm-hmm. have the scripture? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so <laughs> even with... Um, yeah, so even with the peace that Constantine brought to the church, there were still Christians unhappy with the relationship between the church and the state. Um, in other words, they were unhappy with the mixing of politics and religion. And that, that's been a long-standing issue since Constantine. 
which has been a long time, right? I mean, he came into power in the 300s, and it's been a long time that, that we've had a world to, to wrestle with these issues of to what degree does the state and the church intermix, if at all. Um, and so we have a variety of views in our world about that. Um, I, my view, personally, is that I think the state's role is to protect the religious liberties of everybody. Like I, I don't want, the, I don't want the, the state to come against any religious group um, unless, my caveat, unless they're doing something illegal and harming people, I want the state to stay out of it because if the state can go after, let's just say, Muslims for now, okay, if they're going after Muslims, the, the tides of history can turn and then they can come after us, right? And so I want the, the state to basically be like, we're going to protect religious liberty regardless of what that religion is uh, and we'll stay out of it. And that'll be, and that's that. Now, again, I... I Understand that some religious groups become illegal and harmful and do things that are immoral. And so, yeah, the state has to step in when there's crimes being committed. Uh, but for the most part, I think uh, it's best for us to just say, please stay out of this and, and leave us be. Right? And I think that the, the, the other argue, side of the argument would be people, Christians, who say the state should just declare itself to be Christian. Um, and that's called theonomy. Uh, there are some... I think they're crazy people, but um, you know that's just my <laughs> my view. Is that I, I, I try not to, I'm trying not to be overly critical, but it's like it seems very short sighted to me uh, to say we we just need the the state to become officially a Christian thing. We actually America was kind of started because we saw the downsides of that, and we should probably remember that. So um, yeah, you, you got some really goofy things throughout history there, but. Uh, there are still Christians, even in America, that think that the church, the state should just become a Christian state, and I disagree with that. But that's that's me. Okay. Um, so let me go on to some th- – we're going to do some theology here for a little bit because one of the main things that happened in the, in the 300s, between 300 and 400, was the Arian controversy and the Council of Nicaea. Uh, the Council of Nicaea is a big deal in the, uh, in the history of the church. And the Council of Nicaea rose out of a controversy that is called the Arian Controversy. So Arianism was, a, was really the first like, widespread, like, almost empire-wide controversy in the local church, or in the early church, excuse me, um, and basically what the debate over Arianism was, was what's his, what is the relationship between God the Father and the Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, and Arianism, was, which was named after a priest uh, in Alexandria named Arius, uh, Arius basically taught that the Father is the only supreme God and that Jesus was the first creation. So the Son of God is above the creation, above you and me, uh, but he's still just a creature. Now to, to us as, as Christians who understand the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, we read that and go, well, that's insane. Why does anybody believe that? Um, but it really was, a, it was really sweeping uh, the world at this time. People, again, were pretty ignorant of the scriptures um, most people were not literate. Um, they were just being taught from their from their priests and their bishops what what they needed to know, 
And Arius was in a position, at least in Alexandria, he was a big deal, and he was he was teaching his church <clears throat> about these things, basically saying that Jesus is not God. He's just uh, the first creation of God, and um, he's important, but he's not he's not God. Um, and that's that was really an interesting thing as you study Arianism. I think. I've often seen it this way, where I, I look at the false teachers and the, what we would, who we would call the heretics today, the heretics of the church, Arius would be one of them, um, somebody teaching false theology, false doctrine. And, and I think we immediately kind of think of them as these terrible, evil human beings that basically sprout horns. And, um, and obviously, I don't know what Arius' intentions were, but his view didn't just spring up out of nowhere. His, his view actually was a, in a response to what another heresy that existed at this time and, be, and earlier called modalism. Um, so it's gonna, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit here, but modalism is something that freaked everybody out at, in the second century. And basically modalism was a way to explain God's existence and whereas we would say God is a trinity, meaning that he is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that each person is fully God and each person is you know, in, interrelated with one another, but they're distinct and all that hurts our heads, right? But that's, that's what we believe and the Bible teaches that. Um, <clears throat> modalism basically wanted to simplify this and go, no, no, God is just one God but he's chosen to reveal himself in three different styles or modes. So that's where modalism comes from, is that God has different modes. And so sometimes he comes as father, particularly in Old Testament times, uh, then as son when he's Jesus on, on earth, and now as spirit. But it's, it's not that father, son, and spirit exist simultaneously and in perfect unity uh, as one God. It's that God is one, and sometimes he shows up in these different ways. Well, that's false. That's unbiblical. The problem with that is, of course, the Bible doesn't teach that, and it actually makes the Bible nonsensical when you, when you see God in that light. So some examples. Christ on the cross was calling out to himself, asking for him not to forsake himself. That's when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A modalist would have to, if he's, if he's a logical, like, following through with, with the implications of his view, would say that Jesus was just yelling at himself, uh, which is just dumb, frankly, right? Um, or, or at the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, and he's in the water. He's physically on earth in the water. The Father at that moment speaks from heaven, and he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit in that moment descends down as a dove, in the form of a dove, and rests his, himself on Jesus. Well, that's probably one of the clearest Trinitarian passages we have because one person can't be in three places at once. And so you have a, some huge biblical problems with modalism. The early church very quickly addressed modalism and was like, no, uh, this is not Trinitarian biblical theology. So that, that was dealt with. But Arius was basically, getting back to Arius now, he was so concerned about modalism, he really didn't want us to have a, a modalistic view of God, that he chose to lower the Son of God to the status of a creature 
rather than collapsing God into a single being. So in other words, Arius couldn't wrap his head around how God could be three in one. So he's just like, well, he's just, he's not, he's just one, but then Jesus has to be dealt with. So what are we going to do? Well, we'll make him a creature. Um, so th- this is like really crazy. Uh, he had no problem with saying that the son was created as long as it protects the separation of persons and father and son. This is a good example of cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? Because he's, he's like going way overboard with modalism. He's freaking out about modalism. And in the process, he's stumbling his way into a terrible heresy um, that doesn't actually solve the problem, really. So, so in the end, um, Arius' teaching gives rise to this huge controversy. It starts in Alexandria where he's teaching Eventually, over time, it starts to spill out into other parts of the empire, uh, particularly the Eastern Empire. And in the end, uh, Constantine determines that this is a big enough problem that we need a council to decide uh, what to do about this and what does the church believe. So the Council of Nicaea is called. Now, it's called the Council of Nicaea because Nicaea is the city in which it was held, um, this was not the first time in the church's history that, that a council met to decide on something. We see it in Acts 15, uh, where after Paul comes back to Jerusalem after his, I think it was his first missionary journey, and is saying, the Gentiles are like coming to faith like crazy. And the, the, the apostles and those who were near them were like, well, we've got to figure out what we're going to do with these Gentiles. Uh, do they have to become Jews? to become saved or, or are they good to go just by believing in Jesus? And Paul uh, defends the idea because he's there on the ground and he's like, no, they don't need to become Jews to do this. So anyways, we'll get into that in a few weeks at church here uh, as we get into the book of Acts again here. But Nicaea was unique in that this was the first time that uh, a, a council was called by an emperor, uh, for one thing, that that it was called and enforced by Emperor Constantine. And it was unique in that it was, it was actually a collection of bishops from all over the Christian world at this time. So they brought guys from all over the empire. They wanted representation from every part. Because remember, so much of the church was local and regional that there wasn't really a, a fully unified understanding of Christian theology quite yet. So, so Constantine actually, to his credit, had a really smart idea and was like, hey, let's get everybody together and um, let's talk through this and work out this problem. So uh, Constantine really wasn't there. I think he popped into a meeting or two. Um, he kind of, he actually did kind of stay out of it, which was good. Um, but but you had a lot of bishops that showed up and and there's a lot of like, a lot, lot of fact from fiction we've got to kind of work out if you study the Council of Nicaea. There's, there's um, internet memes that just aren't accurate and stuff or whatever. Like there's, a, there's one legend that says that um, St. Nicholas, uh, the one that we call Santa Claus now, was, was there. He may have been there. There's no actual, actual record of that. Uh, but some, some have suggested that he got up and punched Arius in the face. And uh, I think that's funny. I don't know if it's true. It's probably not true. Um, but the main thing was what they did was started in 325. That's when the council meeting began. It didn't, I can't remember what year it ended, but uh, it, took, it took some time because obviously these guys had to travel quite a long distance. They didn't have air travel. So there was, there was a little bit of uh, time that this took. But most of the, the early years 
was giving Arius the opportunity to share his views. Arius' teachings were not known or understood by everybody, and so um, they gave him a lot of time to stand and teach his, or to present his position. Um, and then Bishop Alexander, um, who was, like, uh, if, you, if you know anything about kind of Christian um, leaders of this time, uh, Athanasius was another big name during this. He worked kind of with Bishop Alexander, I believe. But Athanasius, Alexander, they, they were really in opposition to Arius. And so they were, this was basically just like, let Arius talk, then let Alexander kind of counter, counterpoints. At the end of the day, again, it's a, lot, it's a big subject we could tackle, but um, they, they really did not, um, they did not see Arius' point of view. They came down pretty hard on him. And so they ended up developing a statement uh, known as the Nicene Creed. And if you grew up in a church that was more what we'd call liturgical, uh, you, you maybe grew up going to church where you'd recite the Nicene Creed in church. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. But uh, here it is. Uh, I'll just read it for you. It's kind of long, so I got it on a few slides. But it starts with, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for, for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic. Don't get freaked out by that. That's just universal. That's what that word means. Holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So that long statement there is, is what they developed. And uh, the key statement of the Nicene Creed against Arius was this line, in one, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So remember, Arius' view is that Jesus was created. He was made. Um, and they're distinguishing here between begotten, not made. So what does that mean? What is the difference between begotten and made? And you know I had to do it, but I got to go to C.S. Lewis for this one. So uh, I love this. It's just the simplest explanation that I found about begotten and made. He says, this is from Mere Christianity. He says, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you, ma you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a wireless set. Well, an iPhone would be what we would say now, right? Um, it was like 80 years ago. So um, 
C.S. Lewis is making the point that begetting is different from making because to begot, to, for something to be begotten, it is of the same kind as, as what's, what's coming from, uh, from it. So basically what he's doing there is he's, def- he's under- helping us understand what the early church leaders were, were conveying about the Arian controversy and the divinity of Christ. In saying that Jesus was begotten, not made, is another way of saying that, yes, Jesus proceeds from the Father. He is sent to earth by the Father. But if he's begotten of the Father, it means he is very God. He's God as well, because you can only beget what you, uh, the same kind as yourself, right? So to say that Jesus was made is for God to create him as a different thing from himself, um, which, which is not what the, the Council of Nicaea wants us to take away. So, so that's, that's, that's probably as clear as mud. But that is a, a way uh, that we, we understand the distinction between begotten and not made. Um, is what they're saying is, is that, yeah, Jesus did come from the Father. He came to us from him. Uh, but he is also God because he, he's begotten of God, not made by God. Okay, so that's an essential part of what... Uh, the Nicene Creed intends to preserve. The Son of God is not a creature. He's not made. He's not different from the very essence and nature of God. And, and I know we take that for granted now because it's been 1,000 plus years, almost 2,000 years since that council met and discussed those things. And so we really are um, you know, blessed to be able to stand in, in the, on the shoulders of these people who wrestled and fought through these things to preserve the true nature of God from Scripture. Um, and I, that's, that's just what I want us to see, is that the, the Council of Nicaea was crucial to protect the teaching of the Bible. Um, Jesus is truly God. And, and if they had come to a different conclusion, uh, who knows where Christianity would be? Now, of course, God is sovereign, right? He's, he works through all of these things. Um, but it is just amazing to see how God brought his church together in that. Um, now, there are still today modern Arians. Uh, they wouldn't call themselves Arians, but they believe the same thing. And most notably, that would be the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they, they fall outside of what is Orthodox Christianity. We, we see them as a false religion because they believe Jesus is not God, but that he was created by God. That he is, he, they literally explain exactly what Arius believed, that he, that he is the first creation, and, and that's all he is. Um, so if you have a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, uh, just try to engage with them on, on the divinity of Christ and see how it goes, and they'll, they'll just put you on a list and not come back to your house. Uh, at least in my experience, that's how, <laughs> that's how it's gone. Uh, all right. Well, that's the Council of Nicaea. Any questions about that? Um, I know we just drank from a fire hose on all that, but anything you guys want to... Okay. Well, let's talk about Augustine or Augustine. I've heard it both ways. It just it doesn't really matter how you pronounce it, but Augustine of Hippo. Hippo was a city in North Africa, um, but uh, Augustine was one of, if not the most influential theologians of the church. And I, I want to just touch briefly on Augustine because he lived during this, this time. He died in the early 400s. So he was born after the Council of Nicaea uh, started. But um, he becomes a really big deal to the reformers. Um, the reformers of the 1500s, which we'll look at in the, like, the next session after we get done with this one, um, 
they they were really really influenced by Augustine. Um, in fact, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk before he uh, left the church to to uh, reform it. Or got kind of kicked out of the church more or less. Um, but he was very influenced by Augustine, as was John Calvin, as was most of the reformers. They would have called themselves Augustinians, um, people who would have seen the scriptures in light of what Augustine taught. So I wanted to touch on him because there's a couple things that he really uh, was highly influential in in helping uh, get across. There are two books that he wrote that are probably he's, that he's most famous for. They're both considered classics today. They're still in print. They're uh, very easy to get, very cheap to get on paperback or I think Penguin Classics publishes both of these like um, one is called the Confessions of St. Augustine or just the Confessions Um, and then there's the City of God Um, the City of God the the full title is the City of God against the pagans Um, but we just call it the City of God Um, and these two books are what he's most famously known for broadly uh, the first book, Confessions, deals with his conversion to Christianity in his own words. It's basically his biography, autobiography of, of his conversion to Christianity. It's really good. If you've never read the Confessions of Augustine, you should. It's, it's well worth your time. They've got a lot of good modern translations of it. Um, the second one I've not read. I've not ever read The City of God. It's very long. It's very dense. Um, it's on my list of things to work through eventually, but... Um, it's basically a theological framework to help us understand how the church and state should relate to each other. And part of that's because Augustine was writing at the very tail end of the, of the Western uh, Roman Empire and lived, almost lived, to see it, its downfall. So he was, he was living through the decline of Rome um, and the, Roman, the Western part of the empire um, towards the end of his life. And so he's writing, he wrote the, the, the city of God basically to help Christians understand like is, is all of our, are all of our hopes wrapped up in our country or our, or our empire, like surviving or not. And so really probably very good for all of us to read. I haven't read it myself, but I've read the synopsis of it and it makes me want to read it. So anyways, um, Augustine was born in 354. Um, his father was a minor, uh, Roman official had kind of a s- small government job, not a big deal, but he was a pagan, and his mother was a devout Christian. He didn't embrace Christianity until his adulthood, and again, this is all detailed in his own Confessions book. But um, he eventually does come to faith. He comes to faith because he was um, he was I think he was sitting outside one day and he hears um, a little child. He didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. Uh, singing a song where the line that he remembered or picked up on was take and read, take and read. And he took that and said, I think God wants me to read the Bible. And he turned, he turned to Romans, the book of Romans, and he read a verse uh, and was like, wow, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. Kind of a crazy story there, but um, he, he details all of that in his own, his own book there. But he, he does come to faith uh, after that, he moves to Hippo, the city in North Africa, and he starts working for the bishop there. Um, he wrote a ton of, of treaties, uh, theological treaties to defend the Christian faith against heresy. He, he went after the Donatists, which we talked about just a little bit ago. 
um, kind of poked holes in their theology. Um, but his most famous theological battle was against Pelagius. So um, Augustine's view of salvation was, I think, the right one, which is the biblical one, which was that um, only salvation is only by the grace of God intervening in the lives of sinners. That the initiative of salvation does not come from us, it comes from God. Now, that's like two sentences to summarize a very, uh, you know, crazy system of, of theology that Augustine believed, but I think is the biblical one. And in contrast to that, there's this guy named Pelagius right around the same time. They were contemporaries. They never actually met in person. They, uh, they missed Pelagius at some point traveled to Hippo and Augustine just like happened to be out of the city doing something somewhere else. And so they missed each other, which was probably good in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but Pelagius, he was a monk from Britain, uh, Roman, Roman Britain at this time. Uh, he became very famous for his piety. He was kind of a, a monk type of guy. And uh, he claims, um, basically his view is that everybody comes into the world was born into the world with a complete clean slate from sin. We are born morally perfect. And the reason we become sinners is because we make the decision to sin. And so now, obviously, we do make decisions to sin. But the question is, it's a chicken or the egg situation in some ways, but Augustine's view is that we sin because we're sinners by nature, which, by the way, is the Bible's view, because Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Um, we are by nature sinners, and that's why we sin. So yes, we do choose to sin, but we're, we're sinner, we sin because we're sinners. Pelagius' view is that we, were, we are sinners because we sin. We start clean, perfect, righteous, and we make the decision to, to enter into sinfulness. So he's, he basically denies the doctrine of original sin, meaning that the sin of Adam and Eve is imputed to us uh, in, our, in our very conception, and that we need Jesus to then intervene to save us from our sin. So Pelagius' view was picking up a lot of speed. Augustine was not, not wanting to see that happen. So they kind of enter into a distant uh, battle between the two of them in terms of theological writings and uh, trying to um, basically address each other. Now, that's a, that, that was a long-fought fight because it wasn't until 529, which is beyond the, the point where we're going to look at today, but in 529, the Synod of Orange, uh, long after Augustine's death, about a, probably a hundred and close to 30 years after Augustine was dead, uh, Pelagianism was finally declared a heresy, and, um, and, and they declared it a heresy because of its denial of human sinfulness. But uh, Augustine never lived to see that day, which is kind of sad, but obviously he's with Jesus, so it's fine. Um, but yeah, Pelagianism is, is officially a heresy in, in the view of the church at large, um, and, and that is largely because Augustine was so faithful to unpack the Bible and help us understand what is uh, the biblical teaching on this. Okay, well, let's, that, that's, I mean, there's so much more we could say about Augustine, but let's, let's move on to the fall of Rome, and, uh, and then we'll just kind of try to wrap it up with some concluding things to think about. So uh, Rome, um, 
is in the western side of the the empire. Um, Towards the end of Augustine's life, the Roman Empire was beginning to crumble. There were a lot of factors for that. In fact, there's, I mean, it's it's way too complicated of a subject to even narrow it down to like one single cause. Um, But there was economic factors. There was the fact that the the empire was so broad and stretched out that it couldn't be managed. Um, there, There was a lot of a lot of things, but the main thing that was happening was that the Germanic people that had been um, largely uh, held at bay for like a long time, for centuries, the Romans were able to hold back the Germanic people, the Goths and the, the Vandals and these, these people. Um, this was all now starting to break. And the Germanic people were able to break uh, through the borders of the Rhine and the Danube, uh, in Great Britain, it was happening there because there had been kind of a separation of the barbarians from the Romans in the British islands. Um, and now the barbarians are starting to, to rise up and take over. Um, and all of this is kind of happening at the same time. So now these, the floodgates are open and Rome is just not able to, to take this on. And so in a series of waves, these barbarian hordes, as they would refer to them as, uh, cross the frontier of the empire, they sack town and cities, and and basically just destroy Rome. Uh, in the western part of the the empire is is done. So, the west is taken over by the the Germanic peoples. Um, the eastern portion of the empire continues on. It kind of gets goes through some changes, but it lasts for about a thousand years after this, after the fall of Rome. Uh, in the form of the Byzantine Empire. But the West doesn't, um, doesn't survive, and it takes a long time for the West to bounce back. Um, Western Europe uh, eventually will become what we know of as Western, the Western Europe, and the Western world does eventually rise again. Um, but it takes a long time for that to happen, to get political unity and relative peace. Um, and so uh, out of all of this, a new civilization is going, to, is going to arise. So the Western Roman Empire is dead for all, for all intents and purposes, but it's giving way to a new civilization, which is what always happens, right? Whenever, whenever one empire collapses, those people still exist and those, those places still exist. It just takes on a different form. So the heir is the classical Greco-Roman antiquity, um, and it gives birth to Christianity, uh, in, in, in these Germanic traditions, the, the kind of Germany and the well, the Germanic tribes start to infiltrate Christianity, and this this becomes a long thousand-year process um, or thousand-year period known as the Middle Ages or medieval Christianity. So we're going to look at that next week. We're going to start uh, Middle, Middle medieval Christianity, Middle Ages, about a thousand-year period of time. Um, but basically, yeah, we'll just kind of look at how how Christianity changes and morphs uh, as, as these new uh, civilizations take over from Rome. So uh, from there, let me just give you a few conclusions here. I want to go back to Constantine, though, because that's primarily who we've been thinking about in this period of church history. Uh, the question I've got is, was Constantine's embracing of the church a good or a bad thing? And uh, it's, not an, it's not an easy answer. It's not a simple answer. Because I think the answer is yes, uh, it's both. Um, there are goods and bads in this. 
we've already looked at this somewhat, but just to recap it, it's like, yeah, persecution stopped. Um, and that is good. Like, who, who's going to say that we want to see Christians murdered and thrown to lions and all those things? Of course we don't. Um, but the, 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 the way it also worked out was that the church was opened up to power and corruption. And uh, I actually think that this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, but there is a direct line that we could draw from the opulence uh, and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church to Constantine that ultimately leads to the Reformation. Uh, the Reformation, well, again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it'll be weeks before we get back to this, but Martin Luther, one of the things that really disillusioned young Martin Luther, this little little guy, not little, but teenager, um, travels to Rome and he sees like his little village in Germany and how poor everybody is. And then he sees how the Pope is living. And that really shook him. And he was like, there's a problem. Now, we can draw that, that line of how the Roman Catholic Church exists and, and the opulence of it and, and the Vatican and all those things to what Constantine did and, and how he brought power and, and money and all the things to the church. And I, I think at the end of the day, Constantine can serve as a cautionary reminder for us that Christ does not promise us power and influence on this side of his second coming. The true church has always, always thrived in the margins of society, not in the seats of power. And I think for, for a lot of us, we need to remember this, that yes, we want presidents and leaders and congressmen to, to be favorable towards Christianity. We don't want hostility, right? But at the same time, we have to be careful to guard ourselves against the trappings of power or authority or leadership or any of that, because that's not really where... Christianity thrives. Christianity thrives and has always thrived on the margins. The, the fact that Christianity grew at a rapid rate while they're all being killed by the emperors is something to learn from. And, and once Constantine makes it the mandatory religion of the empire, you start to see corruption and, and division and all the things that are kind of gross about what we see in our world today uh, coming into the church. And so I, I just want to take you uh, to, to one Bible passage here. It's, it's 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20, uh, 31. And um, here's what Paul says about this. I think it, it does speak to what we're called to. He says, For the word of the cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to, the, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the cross of Christ is the power of God. That's what he's saying. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then Then he brings it to their person. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. I think that that is an incredible reminder of what the church really is. It is God's people giving him glory. And we're not meant to seek the power and wisdom and nobility that the world offers us. And, and I think that Constantine and uh, his, his whole agenda was very short-sighted and politically motivated. Um, but even in the midst of that, we still see the sovereign hand of God ruling and protecting the church from error and false teaching. He still raises people up who are willing to protect the scriptural teachings. And for that, we can all be grateful and, and thankful. So I, I know it's a mixed bag, and, and, and that's true of everything. That's true of all forms of history. Like everything in this fallen world is a mixed bag that God uses. So, but I, I, would, just, I would just say that Constantine's whole thing is a cautionary story for us as we think about maybe the diminishing of Christianity in the West, um, the post-Christianity that we might be entering into, that, that our hopes really aren't in political power or influence, but it's, it's in the foolishness of the cross, and, and that's what we should cling to and, and put our hope in.